It's certainly a joy and a privilege for me to be able to preach to you this morning. Um, Pastor Henry reminded me that uh, when, we, when we gather together on Christmas Day and we have a chance to, um, to go through the Word, it's kind of like the angels that, were, um, that, that met the, the shepherds in the field and they were proclaiming the glories of Christ to the shepherds. And uh, in a sense, this, this is a very similar action where I, I get to proclaim the glories of Christ uh, to you and the good news of Christ to you. And so it is uh, really a joy and a privilege for me to be here to uh, preach to you this morning. Our passage will be found in the book of John, the book of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. John 1, 14 to 18. And the Apostle John writes this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth where we realize through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for Christ, for the Word who became flesh. And this morning as we look into your Word, as we take a little bit of time out from our Christmas celebrations to study your word and to, to hear from it. We pray that, Lord, you would glorify yourself, that you would help us just to see the good news that you have given to us. And Lord, may we respond appropriately to it. May we be joyous in our celebration. We're grateful, Father, for the fact that you give us your words so that we can know who you are. And we pray that you would glorify yourself this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In the lead-up to Christmas Day, and perhaps even in some of our conversations today, one of the most common things that we ask one another is, what are your plans for Christmas? And this is essentially another way for us to ask one another, how are you planning on celebrating Christmas? Now, depending on your cultural and family background, some of you may find yourself at a Chinese restaurant later tonight without an exchange of gifts. Others of you may find yourself at the home of a relative where you will have a family dinner and a gift exchange. Now, no matter what you do, there is some aspect of celebration to your Christmas, whether your, celebra- whether your celebration constitutes something as small as going to a Chinese restaurant or going to a family dinner. But why? Why do we celebrate this holiday at all? Why don't we simply observe it like we do with some of the federal holidays that are on the calendar? Being together with family is certainly one important aspect of celebrating Christmas, as Pastor Henry kind of mentioned to you in his introduction. But even if your family doesn't do too much on Christmas, just being together to share a meal and perhaps even watch a movie is, uh, can be a precious time that rarely happens during the busyness of the year. However, we also know that Christmas is about celebrating the birth of Christ. Even people who do not believe that he is the Son of God know to a certain extent that Christmas is about celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ was born. And so that leaves us with a question. What about the birth of Christ ought to elevate our celebration during this Christmas season? And this morning, our goal is to look at what the Apostle John wants his readers to understand about the birth of Christ. 
and respond appropriately to that knowledge. And as we study what John writes, we're going to see how the reality of Jesus' birth provides us with two reasons, not just to celebrate, but to joyously celebrate Christmas. Two reasons to joyously celebrate Christmas. And the first reason we have to joyously celebrate Christmas is the assurance of God's loving kindness. The assurance of God's loving kindness. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the outset, what we see is that the Word is not just some random impersonal force, but is a person. When you go up to verses 1 through 5, you'll see that the Word is identified as God, yet is slightly distinct from God. Not only that, but it is through the word that all of creation has come into being. It is through the word that God created everything that we see. And it is through the word that everything that has breath breathes. And now, what we see here in verse 14 is that Jesus does not simply stay in heaven with God after he created everything. But after a period of time, he became flesh. Or he became a man. Now, John knows the right word for man. He could have said Jesus became a man, right? But instead, he says he became, the word became flesh. John didn't forget the word for man, but he chooses this word flesh intentionally in order to emphasize the contrast that takes place as Jesus, who is God, willingly and humbly lays aside his right to operate with full power as God to be a human. One author explains that this phrase, the word became flesh, expresses the reality that in the incarnation, when God became man, that the infinite became finite. Eternity entered time. The invisible became visible. The creator entered his creation. Jesus became flesh. He became a man, not because he was curious as to what we do when we're down here on earth, but because he came on a mission to save the world. Therefore, he became flesh and dwelt among men so he could fulfill God's salvation plan. And that word dwelt, it could also be translated as tented, as in he lived in a tent among us. Now, if you think back to your old Sunday school lessons, you'll recall a structure called the tabernacle, a tent that the people of Israel worshiped God in when they were in the wilderness. And in those days, it could have been said God tabernacled or tented or even dwelt with his people. Now, following the close of the Old Testament, there was a 400-year silence from God because God was disciplining Israel for their sin against him. But now that discipline is over. And at the beginning of the New Testament, what we see is John telling us the word, God the Son, he dwelt among the people. He's dwelling among the people. So he's back. And so John's point to the people is that the silence is over. God's previous discipline is over. And he's revealing himself through the word who dwelt among us and revealed his glory to us so that those who see turn away from their sins and believe might be saved. And that glory that the word shows the people is described as glory, 
as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' glory, the one that he shows us, is the same glory that God the Father has, wrapped up in human flesh. Because Jesus has the exact same nature as God the Father, he is said to be the only begotten or unique Son of God because he alone shares the same divine nature with God. And as we can see, it says that God's nature is one of loving kindness. It's an unmerited favor that he extends to people and truth. God is not a God who is characterized by senselessness or a lack of compassion, but he offers his love to those who will receive it, even being patient with those who do not even believe that he exists. He is also characterized by truth. He does not tell lies, nor does he deceive. He is the ultimate definer and standard of truth. Truth is not your truth or my truth. There's no such thing as your truth or my truth. You hear people say, speak your truth. There's no such thing. There is only one truth. There is only one standard that defines truth, and that is God himself. If anything does not line up with his truth, it is not truth at all. And this is the nature and character of God the Father. And it is the very same nature and character of Jesus Christ. He is indeed the perfect human being, the only perfect human that has ever existed because he alone has God's perfect nature. Now, verse 14, it gives us the words and the report of the apostle John regarding the the nature and identity of Christ. But John doesn't say, oh, just take my word for it. Don't worry about it. He gives us an eyewitness. He brings up Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. And so when Jesus went to John the Baptist to be baptized before he began his public ministry, John the Baptist declared in verse 15, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And that's an interesting declaration from John the Baptist, because as we can see in the gospel accounts from Matthew and Luke, John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. So it's not that John the Baptist forgot that he was somehow the older cousin of Jesus. But why then does he say what he says? How can it be that Jesus has a higher rank, that he came before John the Baptist, when technically he was born six months after? Well, the only answer that can satisfy this question, if we consider what the Apostle John revealed to us back in John 1.1, is that Jesus is eternal. The word was in the beginning, as in he existed before the beginning began. And he was with God because he was God. So what John the Baptist is saying as he says, this is the one who is before me. He existed before me. He has a higher rank than I. What John the Baptist is recognizing is that Jesus, Jesus is eternal. That he has a divine nature. And he doesn't do this just because he was Jesus' cousin. He watched him grow up and he was like, man, this guy never gets mad. This guy never sins. Right? No. But it's because he was the, he's a prophet of God. And as a prophet of God, God told him, and you'll see that later on in John, John 1, God told him that this one is my son. This one is the one who will take away the sins of the world. And so 
Just as the Apostle John told us that God's discipline is over and that God is now with his people again, so does John the Baptist declare that God is once again on the scene. And these two different Johns, they function as witnesses to those who hear them. That God dwells with his people once again, and this is not wishful thinking, but it is certifiable fact. Now, why is the certainty of God dwelling among men through Jesus Christ so important for us to understand? It's because his perfect life and sacrifice on our behalf is the greatest expression of love ever. You and I have sinned against God, whether it be in our actions, words, or even our thoughts. And because of these sins, we deserve divine punishment for all eternity because our sins are committed against a God of infinite worth. No amount of tears shed, money given, good works done, or even patient expiation can ever pay the debt of sin off completely. So God stepped in. And he sent his son to come to earth to be the sufficient sacrifice for all who will believe. We celebrate Christmas because God is not the impersonal, uncaring God that some people make him out to be. Yes, he doesn't always act in a way where he steps into your life circumstances like your own personal Superman who saves you from all pain. But that doesn't mean that he is not in sovereign control. It doesn't mean that he does not care for you. Even though we cannot see always what God is doing in our lives, we know that because he personally intervened to make a way for us to have our sin debt paid, he cares for us. If God will save you from the ultimate threat to your being, eternal punishment in hell, he will certainly not let you waste away for nothing here in this life. And as a result, what we have in the confirmation of Jesus' incarnation, in the assurance of his incarnation, is a reminder of God's loving kindness to all men. God could have left us all to our own devices. He could have given us justice so that the moment we step out of line, we receive the life-ending punishment that we deserve for our sins against him. But God stays his own hand, providing the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Every breath, that those who have not turned away from their sins and believed in Christ is mercy. A temporary mercy that God offers to all for now. He has a gift of grace that he extends to everyone. A gift that leads to the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you received this gift this morning, the reason why you ought to take a step back in the midst of the busyness of the Christmas New Year season and joyously celebrate Christ's coming rather than getting bogged down in holiday stress is because the sweetness of the good news is that is, is yours because of Christ. God loves you. And he demonstrates that love for you ultimately in the giving of his son. In personally doing something about the sin problem that you could not rectify on your own. In doing so, he demonstrates your great worth to him. He chose to save you in spite of what you've done. And as a result, he will continue to hold you fast. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, the certainty of Jesus becoming a man 
is good news for you because it means that if you confess that you are a sinner before God and you believe that he is the son of God who died on the cross for you and then rose again three days later, if you do that, you are no longer in trouble with God. Your sins are forgiven and you can have full assurance that you will live forever with God. And this is the good news that is available to you if you will believe today. The assurance of God's loving kindness through the birth of Jesus Christ is not the only reason why we have to joyously celebrate this Christmas. There's a second reason, and that second reason is the provision of God's salvation. The provision of God's salvation. Verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. The Apostle John, he pulls back from his quote of John the Baptist, and he resumes speaking, and he reminds his readers that everyone who has believed in Christ have received or seen the fullness of God's glory in Christ's person. This is a reiteration that God's glory was made manifest. It was made visible in Jesus' physical body. Because Jesus became a man, God's salvation plan could be put into full effect as a final answer to the sin problem that you and I have. And that final answer is that it can be removed. It is possible for sin to be forever removed from our accounts. Thus, the end of verse 16 says, and grace upon grace. Now, while that's a good translation, a better translation would actually be grace for grace or grace in place of grace. That should lead us to that ask, what grace is being exchanged for another? Verse 17, it says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking, how is the law of Moses grace? Because it's law, which means that it is the exact opposite of grace. And if that's what you're thinking, you're only partially right. Upon fleeing Egypt, Israel is faced with a terrifying revelation. They were just rescued from the global superpower of the day by God himself. They saw his holiness. They saw his power in full effect. How he wiped out his enemies. And yet they realized, oh no. We're sinners. And if we're sinners, we are also his enemies. And so the question that we find... after the book of Exodus, is how can a sinful people have a relationship with a holy God without dying because he could rightly wipe them out for their sins before him just like he did to Egypt? So that's the question that they have. And that's why, right after the book of Exodus, you have Leviticus. God provided them the law through Moses to show his grace towards them, while at the same time pointing to a future grace that is to come. Through the law, the people of God had a partial answer to the question, how can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? God himself provided a way through the sacrificial system. And the flaws of the Mosaic law are apparent, as the sacrifices had to be continually offered before God as as the people repented of their sins. And the reason why they had to continually offer sacrifices before God was because their sacrifices for sin was only a mere covering, a temporary covering of their sin. 
Every time they sinned again, they would have to offer more sacrifices, right? So it did not necessarily help the people continue to keep the law or live rightly before God. And that's why the law eventually became distorted to the point where Jesus had to correct the religious leaders of Israel in their interpretation of the law. However, the law itself, as originally given to Moses, was an example of God's grace as God himself provided a way for his people to be made right before him, even if it was only a temporary covering of sin. But what we see is that a greater grace than the law now appears in the form of Jesus Christ. Israel's understanding of God's grace and truth was only a part of the full picture God intended for them to understand. But like any preview, it was not the full realization of what was to come. As we see at the end of verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The fullness of God's salvation plan is seen and understood in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The end goal of God's salvation plan has always been for a permanent sacrifice for sin to be made. And in Jesus, that plan is realized. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 states, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, that is himself, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross, put an end to the sacrificial system because his sacrifice satisfied God's wrath against sin for all time, for all who will believe. Our sin is against an infinite God, which is why the punishment we deserve for our sin is an eternal punishment. And the only way to pay for an infinite debt is for a sacrifice of infinite worth to be made in our place. If we have tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt, we'll never pay our credit card debt off by only paying our monthly minimums. Right? If you only pay your monthly minimums, you'll never ever pay off your debts. It makes maybe a small dent in your debt. It'll keep your creditors off your back for a short while. But ultimately, it does nothing to the mountain of debt before us. Now, the only way that that debt can be paid off fully is if we begin to make larger payments or one lump sum to wipe out the whole thing. Because Jesus shares in God's nature of grace and truth, his perfect life has an infinite worth. Therefore, when he died on the behalf of you and me, His sacrifice is able to cover the infinite sin debt of every single person who believes in him. If Jesus were not God, his perfect life would have only cleared his life legally before God. But because he is completely man and completely God, he represents all of mankind. And so when he offers up his life, he does not just pay off the sin debt of the first 144,000 people who believe in him and then everyone else is on the outside looking in. No. 
He pays for the sin debt of every single person who believes in him. That's infinite payment after infinite payment after infinite payment for every single one who believes. Now, some of you, you might object to the word choice of sin. Sure, you know what the church defines as sin, but in your mind, perhaps the church is blowing it way out of proportion. Yes, nobody's perfect, but these are just mistakes. It's just a part of being human. If God exists, he can't hold us accountable for being human, right? God can hold us accountable for being human. In fact, being human is our problem. Because we all have a sin nature, we all fall short of God's perfect standard. Stated earlier, if God is the definition of truth, then he determines what is right and what is wrong. He determines what is righteous and what is sin. And if sin is our failure to conform to God's perfect standard as established by his law, then we all have a significant legal problem that we cannot make right on our own. As the one who upholds justice, God has every right to keep us accountable for all the wrongs that we have done. And though he may not hold you accountable for your sins right away, make no mistake, God is not mocked. All who do not confess their sins and believe in Jesus Christ will be held accountable. God's record against sin, against injustice, is perfect. He is unbeaten in every court case. And he will never lose. And the way that salvation is possible, the way that God's perfect record is able to stand is because when we believe in Jesus Christ and turn away from our sins, our sinful records are cleared by Jesus when they believe. But they're not necessarily just cleared and just put into oblivion, but they're put on him. Right? In that moment, Christ's righteousness is transferred to us, but he takes on all of our sin debt on himself. But because of his infinite worth, that doesn't pull him down. That doesn't make him that doesn't make him the object of eternal wrath forever. He is able to overcome because of that. Because of the greatness of Christ. He never runs out of funds to take on our debts. And he, that allows him to keep this offer of forgiveness of sins available for all who will confess their sins and believe in him. And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news that we could ever hear. Because there's absolutely nothing we can do on our own to save ourselves. But God, through Jesus, stepped in to take on your sin debt our sin debt and to give us his righteousness to credit that to our account to make us righteous before him before God and to restore that broken relationship that we have with God that's what he wants to do that's what he did do the law was given to help us see there's absolutely nothing that we can do on our own, to achieve a right standing before God. In fact, it shows us that we are desperately in need of divine intervention because we're helpless, absolutely helpless. All of our righteousness is but filthy rags before God. And in God's perfect salvation plan, he allowed for the law to show us how much we need him, to show us how desperate we are for him, 
so that he could send in Jesus so that we can see how God's salvation plan is infinitely better than anything that we could have possibly imagined or dreamed of. It's better than any effort we could ever use to try and save ourselves. And though we may still slip back into our sins after we place our faith in Christ, we know that Christ has paid for all of these sins. And all we need to do is confess these sins and basically get up and try again. Every single Christian is in the process of becoming as much like Jesus as they can in this life. They can and they will fail. Christians are naturally hypocrites who will struggle in this life. But the difference between genuine Christians who struggle with sins and supposed Christians who live how they want is that genuine Christians are marked by lives that are worked that are working hard to put away their old sins so that they can imitate Jesus. Those who may be only Christians by name or perhaps are just immature Christians don't care to become like Jesus. And they abuse the gift of grace that is given to them. And if that's where you find yourself today, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. The good news of the gospel is that it is never too late to repent of your sins. It is certainly never too late to strive to take ownership of your faith and learn to be like Christ. It is not hopeless. It is not an impossible task. It is possible through God, through the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the hope that is for you today. You can be made new. You can have a right relationship with God beginning today. By God's grace, you can believe. And you can do what is seemingly impossible. You can turn away from your sins and become like Christ. Now, while it does require a little work on your part, God provides all the power through his Holy Spirit for you to pursue righteousness. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul says later on in the scriptures that when God begins a good work in you, the good work to make you like Jesus, he will be faithful to complete it. That's a guarantee. Genuine believers in Jesus Christ do not need to worry about failing to be like Jesus Christ because in the end, God in the Holy Spirit will get you there. God will get you there. And the good news of the gospel, the amazing mystery of God's salvation plan, is the basis for our celebration today. And if you're not grateful, if you're struggling to be joyful as you consider all that God in Christ has done to get all of your sin out of the way so that you can be with him, please stop for a moment to think about why that joy eludes you. Finally, John concludes this paragraph by reminding us of the joyous truths that are Ours because the word became flesh. He writes, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John reiterates the fact that God the Father has never been seen by anyone in his fullness because he is spirit. And because his holiness would instantly destroy us because of our sin nature. However, Because the unique Son of God, the only begotten God, Jesus Christ, is unified with God the Father. He is able to show us what God is like. He shows us what God is like through his life. And what John says is that Jesus, he has explained God. 
Jesus has explained God. It could also be understood as Jesus has revealed God to us. Man's view of God was incomplete, but through Jesus Christ, God made himself known to us as much as can be understood while we're on this side of eternity. And as a result of this clearer picture of who God is, of what God is like through Jesus Christ, we can see why God allowed for his salvation plan to unfold in the way that it did. God sovereignly put everything into place, everything into motion, so at the right time, all the world might have access to the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the word became flesh, the full beauty of God's salvation plan can be understood in full color. All that God wants for us to know at this time has been revealed through his written word. And as we look back at what God has done, there is no way that we can hear these truths and sing Christmas songs without feeling. We sing some of those songs and we hear those words, Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Isn't that amazing? That God, creator of all the universe, considers us who are but specks, who are but dust. And he is with us. He dwells among us. And he has provided a way for every single one of us to have our sins forgiven so that we can be with him, so that we can have a right relationship with him. That is good news. That is joyful news that causes us to celebrate. And I mean, the fact that God would consider us, care for us, personally intervene on our behalf, deliver the gospel message to us, work in our hearts to allow for us to believe, fulfill the good work he began in us, That's the best news that we could ever hear. And because of that good news, because of the fact that this is the best news that we could hear, because this is the great hope that lies before us in heaven, we ought to have great joy, even if it is in the midst of the most trying circumstances, even if it is in the midst of suffering, we have hope because we know of all that God has done to bring us back to him. Because he's brought us back to him, we have hope that at the end of this life, it won't be the end of our lives. It won't be eternal punishment in hell forever. But it will be eternal life with him, the one who satisfies our souls completely. One of infinite worth who we get to look upon and worship. Following the conclusion of this Christmas Day service here, Many of us will rush off to get to the next place we have to be to celebrate Christmas with our family or friends. And even if we don't have much planned, there's an aspect of celebration that we have to look forward to this day. But as we hustle to and fro, wrapping last-minute gifts, preparing food, traveling, cleaning, whatever it may be, I pray that you would continue to keep in mind why you can joyously celebrate today, even if there is a little bit of stress that's there. We joyously celebrate Christmas today because the reality of the word became flesh. It assures us of God's loving kindness as God stepped into creation to provide a way of salvation for all who will believe. This is the Christmas story that we're all familiar with, but I pray that that familiarity does not decrease the wonder and joy that the good news of the gospel brings, but rather increase it. Let's pray.
Father, we are so grateful that you did not leave us to our own devices. That you are not an impersonal God who does not care for us. But rather you care for us so much that you personally intervened. You personally stepped into human history to provide a way for all of our sin debt to be taken care of. Lord, we recognize that on our own, we can do nothing. Our righteousness, our righteous acts might be small deeds of kindness that we can do towards others, and it can make a slight impact on others' lives. But in the long run, the debt of our sin cannot be overtaken by our good deeds. And as we find ourselves in that troubling, that looking at those troubling figures, as we look at our balance sheet, we understand that we are helpless. We can do nothing. But because of Christ, Lord, you don't just wipe out our debt. You give us infinite treasure, infinite riches in Christ and in yourself. And it's all possible because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us your glory. For those of us here who are believers, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to really consider the great wonder that it is that you loved us so much. You sent your son to die on the cross for us. Help us not to grow tired of the gospel, but to be in awe and wonder as we consider these great truths. For those who are here this morning who do not believe in you, we pray, Lord, that you would help them just just to see how much you love them, to impress upon their hearts that you are a God of love and compassion who desires for them to turn away from their sins and to believe in you and that you are patient towards them now. Lord, we also pray that you would have mercy upon them and that you would allow for them to believe so that they would not be left to their sins and the rightful punishment that belongs to them there. Lord, help them to see that this is not you being capricious. This is not you being senseless or over the top. But, Father, this is you upholding justice, perfect justice. There is no mistrial of justice here. And we pray that you would remove any obstacles that would cause them to object to your love. And we pray that, Lord, you would give them eyes to see that love that you have for them so that while there is still time, while there is still mercy, that they would grasp it and receive your grace. We're grateful for this Christmas day. We pray that, Lord, you would be with us as we go our separate ways, that you would allow for us just to um, celebrate joyfully all that you've done and to enjoy the family that you've given and the friends that you've given. We're grateful for everything that you've done as your sons, and we pray. Amen.